The scripture uh, for this morning is from Luke 19, uh, 1 to 11. It says, um, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times that amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. The book of Luke is written to a guy named Theophilus. And if you flip to Luke 1, you will see that Theophilus is apparently someone really important and rich. Luke is writing two whole books, Luke and Acts, specifically for this guy, probably because he was commissioned by Theophilus to do it. Luke calls him most excellent Theophilus, so you know he's an important dude. And when you remember this throughout the whole book, you'll recognize that the choices that Luke makes about which stories from Jesus' life to tell and how to tell them are, in a lot of ways, meant for somebody rich. Luke doesn't pull any punches, though. In fact, his gospel might have more harsh language about, Luke's about, um, about how you use money than any of the other gospels. Luke is constantly communicating an idea that medieval people called noblesse oblige, which means nobility obligates. In other words, if you manage, whether through luck or through hard work, to get rich, you have a strong obligation to use that wealth to help the poor. In our culture, we like to think that we have a meritocracy, and then that means that you get, you get to a position of power by your own merits. What that can mean sometimes, though, is that you don't feel an obligation to help people who are lower on the totem pole, but nobility obligates, and you have an obligation to your fellow human. Theophilus has to be very careful with his money, Luke says, because it can corrupt him. It can dull the pains of the world so that he feels that he doesn't need God. And most of all, he will have to give an account for how he used his money to help people. In our culture, which has been pretty wealthy by the standards of the world for a long time, Luke's ideas about how money ought to be used is something that really needs to be preached. You'll notice that there are two really famous stories between Luke 18 and 19. Both of them would have been really relevant to Theophilus, and they're really relevant to us, too, today. One of them is called the rich young ruler. And in that story, the rich young ruler, and we'll call him the RYR, <laughs> asks Jesus what he has to do to have eternal life. The RYR has done everything that the law requires, but he senses that there's something missing. At that point, the RYR gets sad because he was really rich. At that point, Jesus says the haunting words, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. But when everyone asks, wait a minute, that's impossible. Jesus says, what's impossible with men is, impossible, is possible with God. It's a sad story, and if you're a super important and rich Theophilus, you're reading it and you could totally identify with the RYR and are so afraid of what this story might mean. 
you'd have to be asking, could I be saved? What do I have to do? If this super righteous RYR can't do it, how can I? Theophilus would have been the first to recognize that money can have a hold on you. You keep working for money alone, and the time might just come that you become a slave to it. That's true of all idols. You think at first they can help you, but one day you find yourself serving them. In the Civil War, the Union sang this parody of the song Dixie, and one of the lines in the song called the South, where cotton's keen and men are chattels or slaves. And you notice that the song doesn't specify that it's the slaves that are chattels, but all the people in the South were. They had enslaved themselves to keen cotton, and that money made them subservient to a crop. And it can be almost impossible to break free from that bondage to money. When Theophilus is in this frame of mind, one of the very next stories is this one about Zacchaeus. It's interesting because out of all the four gospel writers, only Luke decided to include this one. And I think that's because he wants, even more than the other writers, to really talk about the relationship a rich person like Theophilus should have with money. He shouldn't be like the RYR. He should be like Zacchaeus. Where the story of the rich young ruler feels almost hopeless, the story of Zacchaeus shows you what it looks like when someone totally has his life changed and breaks out of the hold that money can have on a rich person. And it's even more hopeful than that. The RYR was more righteous than most people. He followed all the laws that God had given him since birth. And Jesus doesn't even challenge him on that. But he can't manage to repent from his excessive wealth. On the other hand, Zacchaeus is an objectively terrible person. But he manages to be so inspired by the beauty of Jesus and his gospel that he gives it all away and then some. And so when you put yourselves in the shoes of Theophilus, a super rich and important guy, not so far off the same shoes that we wear around, you see that these two stories back to back give you a choice. Will I be like the RYR, the really good person who ultimately holds something back from Jesus? Will I be like Zacchaeus, the really terrible blood trader who somehow finds a way to see past his addiction to more money and sells it all so he can be with Jesus? And we don't really like our own taxes, but in ancient Judea, Judea, they had even more reason to hate taxes. And of course, Zacchaeus was not only a tax collector, but the chief tax collector. One of the main reasons that the Roman Empire expanded so much was in order to bring plunder back to Rome. Political leaders, who were also military leaders, would conquer an area and bring back as much plunder as they could so they could become popular and get elected to higher and higher positions. That happened to Judea around 70 years before the events of this passage, so that, that was still in their memory. Not only would they brutally conquer these areas and extract their wealth, but the provinces were also forced to pay taxes that could be sent back to Rome for the sake of the empire. Imagine that, paying high taxes to an empire that hates your guts and has taken away your ruler so that you, that you thought was promised by God. It doesn't sound like fun. But it gets worse. In ancient Rome during this time, taxes were not collected by the government, but by private agents. Zacchaeus likely wasn't employed by the Roman government itself. Basically what happened is that a bunch of wealthy guys would go up to the Roman Senate and bid on how much they could extract from a province without them revolting. The person who said they could get the most normally won. But the Roman government at this point didn't pay their tax collectors. Instead, they were allowed to skim whatever they wanted off the top of what they took from the provinces, so long as Rome gets the taxes they were supposed to get and they didn't revolt. Of course, the tax collectors wanted to get as much money as they could from the provinces, so they really, they really would push the limits of what they could get. 
One way to push those limits was to hire a bunch of goons to walk around with you so that even if people wanted to avoid paying taxes, they could be shaken down by your tough guy minions. Since the tax collectors were partially in charge of making sure the provinces don't revolt, they were also responsible for employing their own private military force to keep the peace. Rome recognized that, that the best tax collectors were also ones that were from their native province. You know all the pressure points, you know how to shake people down, you know what's important to them, and you know what might make them revolt. That meant that if you were a Jewish tax collector, they'd normally send you to Judea. But think about the dynamics of the feelings that those provinces would have. The Jewish people all feel that the reign of Rome is illegitimate, and they think that God wants them to one day have their own king. But certain Jews, like Zacchaeus, instead decide to use the Roman occupation as a chance to get rich. They're in bed with the Romans. They're working with the Romans. They have hired goons meant to keep you down, and they're constantly skimming a little bit off the top of the taxes they extract from you. Not only are the tax collectors evil, but they're blood traders, selling out their own people on behalf of an, a foreign empire to get some coin. You can see now that tax collectors in the ancient world didn't really look like the people over at the IRS. They're more like mafia dons who have all the power and have every right to commit overwhelming violence if you refuse to pay. They walk around with their hired thugs and are completely untouchable. I know that if I was alive at this point, I would hate Zacchaeus. He would symbolize everything I thought was wrong with Judea. And I would think that he is one of the main reasons that Israel isn't back to its former glory. When I would imagine the world being set right, Zacchaeus getting his is one of the first things that I would imagine. Zacchaeus was a small man. And I imagine that would have been another really frustrating thing about him. Sticking with the mafia analogy, do you ever notice how mafia bosses in movies very rarely look super strong? They never really get their hands dirty because they don't need to. They have the whole world practically protecting them. In this way, Zacchaeus is a lot like the Godfather or Carmine Falcone from Batman. Zacchaeus lacks any power himself. Practically anyone could beat him up. But if it weren't for his hired goons, people would laugh in his face when he asked him for money. That's the one frailty that Zacchaeus has. He's physically weak. So when he climbs up on that tree, he's accentuating his only embarrassing trait, showing everyone that he's not tall enough to see Jesus. It's basically pointing out that the emperor has no clothes. He's not strong enough alone, so he needs his dunes to protect him. Not only does he climb the tree, but he also runs ahead of the whole crowd to see Jesus. Running for men at this time was a completely undignified thing to do. There's no doubt that Zacchaeus is making a fool of himself here. But Zacchaeus doesn't care. I'm sure it'd be exhausting to be, in some ways to be a mafia boss. And Zacchaeus is leaving that behind. In Jesus, he sees salvation from the kind of life that he was living. And so he throws wealth and dignity out the window. Why should he care if someone sees him running and climbing trees? He's about to have his sins forgiven. The story of the rich mafia boss, Zacchaeus, ends up being very different from the rich young ruler. If you could expect anyone to get the forgiveness of sins that everyone needs, you would probably expect the rich young ruler, who kept every commandment that God asked of him until the very end. You certainly wouldn't expect the evil blood trader mafia boss to be the one that gets forgiven. And that contrast was really scandalous. 
because it said something about who Jesus wanted to be a, new, a part of his new people. The Jews thought that the way to get forgiveness of sins was by giving your allegiance and loyalty wholeheartedly to the Torah. You study the Torah day and night, you follow it to the letter, and you do everything that the rich young ruler did. But Jesus said that forgiveness of sins was not going to come through allegiance to the Torah, but through allegiance to Jesus himself. You obey whatever he tells you because he is God. You give him your loyalty. Because ultimately, the difference between the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus was that the rich young ruler was obedient to the Torah, but Zacchaeus was obedient to Jesus. That's why Zacchaeus had dinner with Jesus, while the rich young ruler went away sad. That's why Jesus said, I tell you the truth, salvation has come to this house. So when Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich, man to person, to en- rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, and the disciples asked, who then can be saved? The answer is, somebody like Zacchaeus, who gives his loyalty to me and comes and eats with me. And the same goes for us. If we are rich people who feel like we're enslaved to money, and we think it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than to free ourselves from it, there's one major step we can take that will make this work. We get close to Jesus and we have dinner with him. We start to get to know him and party with him. And eventually, Jesus will rub off on you, and you'll see the world a different way. And eventually, you'll be transformed. You'll notice that Zacchaeus didn't announce that he was repenting and giving away his money until after he had been invited to dinner with Jesus. So obviously, the question is, how do we talk and have dinner with Jesus? Like we talked about last week, prayer really does bring us into the presence of Jesus, and he can rub off on us that way. But we can also have dinner with Jesus by having dinner with each other. As brethren, we really do believe that God is in the midst of us when we gather together. And that's no small thing. When we hang out together, we're hanging out with Jesus as well, and he's rubbing off on us. It would be one thing if Jesus talked to Zacchaeus, heard him say that he was repenting and giving his money away, and said, hey, that's cool, you do Zacchaeus, and then went on his way. I would honestly prefer that. But instead, Jesus says, I must come and eat with you. He's constantly eating with these sinners. He's celebrating with them and partying with them because they have become fully a part of what God was doing in his kingdom. And everyone is sitting there and watching and thinking, is this the kind of company that Jesus keeps? Imagine being one of Zacchaeus' neighbors and seeing that his house gets richer and richer, and he shows off more and more of his wealth, and knowing full well that it's your money that he took to build that house, and he got it all by selling out to the Romans. Then Jesus comes along, and in 10 minutes, he's dining with Zacchaeus in his house like an old friend. Jesus happily bears the shame of eating with these sinners. That's what the church needs to do, too. Jesus is eating with these horrible sinners all over the world. And if we want to be Christians, we want to join him. We have to go where he is. Our church should not only be a haven for social outcasts, but also for those who are social outcasts through their own fault. We don't have a lot of grace for people who do horrible things and who don't have excuses for them in our society. A lot of times we do everything we can to find some excuse for someone's behavior just to make it easier, that we can hang around them. And honestly, that might be a good strategy. But sometimes you look at someone's actions full in the face and there's not a whole lot you can say in their defense. 
we are called to forgive them even then. Zacchaeus had every choice in the world available to him, and he chose to steal from his fellow Jews on behalf of a hated empire. Nevertheless, Jesus happily ate with him and took all the scorn that came with it. Zacchaeus was suffering all the ostracization that he deserved, and Jesus was suffering it along with him. That way he wouldn't be alone. That's what we do in the church. We see the people that are suffering, no matter why they're suffering, and we sit there and suffer along with them. Jesus is doing that right now, suffering with the brokenhearted. We should join him. It can be hard for people to see Jesus suffering with them, but it's a lot easier if they see you suffering with them. But in this happy tale of salvation coming to the house of Zacchaeus, let's take a moment to recognize that there's a dark and ominous cloud in this passage. In offering salvation and intimate relationship to someone as terrible as Zacchaeus, Jesus' actions flew in the face of the sensibilities of both the poor common Jew hoping for the return of the kingdom of Israel and the entrenched powers like the Pharisees of Judean society. As N.T. Wright says, the he has gone in to spend time with a sinner in this passage will soon change to he has gone out to die with the brigands. Jesus spent time with sinners and outcasts all the way up until the time when he hung on the cross between two thieves. Just like Jesus, we may just pay a price for going out with him to hang out with sinners. But that's where he is, and that's where we should be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it can be so difficult to save ourselves from the love of money. Help us to have the courage to eat with you and hang out with you so that you rub off on us and until we are capable of loving you the way that we deserve. Help us to have the courage to go out into the world and to join you in seeking and saving the lost. Amen.